Welcome to Podshipper. This is your host, Jared Blumenfeld. We live in a tumultuous world. White supremacists and an assortment of other seditionists just lay siege to Congress. COVID continues to ravage our nation and the world, and most of us are just sick and tired of being sick and tired. We know there's a different path, and yet we're often fearful of trying something new. Our very resistance to change is fundamentally an inability to let go of an unworkable past in exchange for a workable future. We've lost track of the necessary connections between our well-being as people and the well-being of the social environment around us. This is a quote from Frederick Hudson nearly 30 years ago. In order to bring us towards a new vision for America, we need to first combat cynicism, powerlessness, personal isolation, and hopelessness, which seem at an all-time high right now. In order to do that, we're going to need true leadership. This week, I talk with Lisa Jackson, whose compassion, intelligence, empathy, and life journey have catalyzed into a clear, bold vision of tomorrow's potential and how we can get there. Lisa grew up in New Orleans, graduated from Tulane, and then got a master's from Princeton in chemical engineering. She worked for EPA in the Superfund division for nearly two decades before transferring her talents to the state of New Jersey. Lisa was then chosen by President Obama to lead EPA, which she did from 2009 to 2013. Since then, Lisa's been the Vice President for Environmental Policy and Social Initiatives at Apple. I sit down with Lisa outside in San Francisco at a time when the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency is in tatters after four years of Trump's vandalism. But let's first return to rosier times. I start by asking what it was like to get the call from President-elect Obama. There are things I remember, which is my interview with the president-elect in Chicago was right before, it was the week of Thanksgiving. Wow. And so I, you know, flew into Chicago very, very quietly, met him at the federal building, ended up in the elevator riding up with Rom, too too nervous to say hi, Rom, just <laughs> sort of, oh, that's Rom Emanuel. And by then he had been named, I think, chief of staff. You would assume, like, with with cabinet-level positions, you think there must be, like, 27 interviews and I don't know how many people. But it really just came down to him and Ram, who I talked to for a little while. Um, And I was sitting in a room. I had a trio at the time. I had never had a BlackBerry. That was for DC. I mean, that's how freaking long ago Ago it was. was. I mean, I don't even remember. Like a trio. Trio. Palm trio. Mm -hmm. I remember uh, and I was sitting in this office. They put you in a holding room because they don't want you to see who was, went in before. Could be a rival for the job. Yeah. Could be someone was else. Was there a rival for the job? You, you know, how do I know? I'm sure. I'm sure there were. Or I mean, there might have been other people who were yeah. talked to. Um, and so, you know, I'm sitting in there and I'm texting my husband. I'm sending him a message. It's a long way where you have to go, hey. Um, and I'm like, yeah, you know, this is crazy. I'm, I can't believe it. I'm going to meet him. And all of a sudden, this, you know, head with a pair of ears comes around the partition. And you know those government partitions, same ones. And he's like, you ready? 
<laughs> and I was like, me? Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I think there's a part of him, as you know, that I think likes that moment of like panic that happens when people realize it's him. Yeah. Um, but the other thing I remember is that, you know, he and I are about the same age. Um, I think he's a little older, maybe a year older, a half a year older. But it was the first time and probably the last time when I interviewed with someone who was really my contemporary. Yeah. And we had similar touch points in music. You know, I remember making a joke about Parliament Funkadelic. I remember saying something else that was culturally, you know, not way out there, but just a touch point of the kinds of things you did if you graduated high school the year we did and went to college when we did. And I thought, this is like what white people have all the time, <laughs> you know, and it's not, it, it wasn't, it was just a soft memory and a soft recollection, mm. but I've always thought since then how important it is to try to fight that you have diverse people doing interviews because you, you sometimes see a different person if you can make those touch points easily, whereas if you can't, you know, it, it could be really different. But anyway, so we sat and talked, I'm going to say 40 minutes. Uh, when I came out, I remember him saying to Ram, this is, you know, this is Lisa. You need to sit with Lisa. <laughs> I wanted to say, I just rode up the elevator with you. And then I went home. And you just wait. You know, you don't really know what's happening. And then comes this mysterious process that we now see quite clearly where all of a sudden somehow your name leaks into the media. And then you realize later it's them, somebody in the apparatchik trying to, you know, sort of vet you. And then... I got asked to come to Chicago again, and this time for the announcement. Mm. And I brought the kids, and Kenny Kenny came with us. Um, and that was really special, too. And it felt like a really innocent time. I mean, you'd been with EPA, then you were the New Jersey Environment Commissioner, mm-hmm. then you were Colzine's chief of staff, but it was still kind of like New Jersey. And, oh, yeah, know, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it was different. I was at EPA almost... 20 years. You know, I started at EPA in 1987 in Washington, and then I moved in 1989 to the regional office in New York City. And then I went on loan from EPA, but was still an EPA employee, went to the state and eventually became a state employee. So there was, there is a level, and I think it's actually an essential level of naivete. It's actually why in some ways I really admire people who go back in because you don't have that. You know, at that point, it's not that I didn't... I mean, New Jersey is pretty rough and tumble um, in a wonderful way. I love New Jersey. But there's politics. There's, you know, it's the most densely populated state in the country. So development pressures, water pressures, water quality, super waste, fun. super fun yeah. sites, everything. You sort of go in and you just don't know <laughs> how it's going to be. Um, I'm listening to President Obama's book right now, a promised land and you realize like now looking back you can look at this sort of converging of political wins and economic wins and sort of social wins all and it all makes sense but at that point we all we knew was that we were at this moment when we were finally able to look again at climate change at environmental justice at issues of uh, inclusion for communities which I remember feeling so starkly that the, that communities just didn't have a voice I was teasing someone the other day in a way it's like they say about childbirth, <laughs> you know, yeah. you probably wouldn't sign up for that if you had any ideas. So in a way, it's probably good not to um, not to have a full picture of the sausage making, as they call it, because coming in and having um, 
enthusiasm and like you say it sort of being a little innocent is actually I think really important because you're trying to do something that's incredibly optimistic which is protect the people um, human health and the planet and so you need optimism you definitely do I mean just like now you are coming in after four eight years of Bush and we couldn't imagine then I mean I remember thinking Bush is the worst president we will ever have I mean he was so bad and on the environment I remember all the terrible things he did and the protests we led against him. and There's also this thing of the pendulum. I remember saying the pendulum swings back and forth, but unfortunately every time it swings, it doesn't necessarily go as high in the direction of protection as it did the last time. So yeah. it really is like a pendulum kind of winding down, and it just felt like every time you came in behind an administration that had had these conservative ideas, cutting back government, certainly over time, more and more pressure to uh, narrow the EPA's influence. You never get back to where you were when the pendulum swung swung back again. But what was nice, and I, I think you were there for that, you know, the first couple of days, we just had open house. We opened the administrator's office, and people I hadn't seen in 10 15 years, people I worked with, you know, back in the early days when I was at the agency in the 80s came in. And it was actually really nice because the agency's strength has always been this incredible cadre of professional people who know more about, you know, air or water or waste or toxics, risk assessment, all these highly technical things than, you know, anybody in the world in many cases. It just felt like your leadership took just so much focus and energy to move the whole agency from where it was like if it was really physical like you bringing it from where it was to where you wanted it to be it's an act of love I think for all of us who were there you know what I loved about the team was that it was made of people in large part who had been around the agency for a long time or sort of knew the agency and loved the agency for its own set of reasons They were all people who, in many ways, and I think we're seeing that again, are coming back saying, hey, (laughs) you know what, I can't, I I remember this institution doing, you know, had this incredible history um, and what it's done, and I want to see that again. You know, EPA just turned 50 in December, and um, when when it turned 40, we had that EPA at 40. (laughs) Do you remember uh, with Schwarzenegger? Yes. That's the whole yeah, story there. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. God almighty. Oh, yeah. And D- no, no. More importantly for today's audience, Dionne Warwick, who is now a Twitter phenomenon, uh, uh, sang happy birthday to the agency. Yeah. Do you remember that? Yeah. She's saying happy birthday and America the Beautiful. Because she's got a lot of interesting theories about the universe. Hey. But she's also an amazing singer. She is. And I she love was her. she was incredibly interested in the mission of the place. Mm. We went back and we played those old commercials from the seventies about noise pollution and yeah. water pollution. Aspen Institute did the forty greatest things EPA has done in yeah. forty years and you realize like setting up recycling programs, which of course now if you live in San Francisco, it's not EPA running that show, but you think of it as like sort of just part of how we all live. But yeah. there was a time when we, you know, all this cardboard would <laughs> end up in a landfill, right? It's happening again. Is it? Yeah. I was wondering about like what's going on. I yeah. saw an article this morning, though, that said 
they're not overrun because they're getting tons of residential cardboard, but no, you know, corporate. And yeah. so they're able to still handle what's happening. There's a lot of contamination with PPE and, uh, yeah, a lot of packaging material from Amazon and others that mm, too much. is not recyclable. Mm-hmm. Even though you officially came from New Jersey, that you came from New Orleans. I did. I did. I was actually born in Philadelphia. Um, I was adopted by my mom and dad when I was about a month or so old from Philly, from a Catholic orphanage, and brought back to New Orleans. So to me, New Orleans is home. And um, I grew up in the Ninth Ward, which uh, is somewhat known because that's where the levees broke. I, I did not grow up in the lower Ninth Ward where the levees broke, where the water rushed in. In Katrina. Um, during Hurricane Katrina, yeah. thanks. Yeah, um, but I grew up in what's called Punch Train Park. And, um, yeah, it was a, you know, all-black neighborhood. It was built in the 50s during segregation. It was post-war, mostly men coming back from the war and, and young families. And so everyone was around the same age, you know, um, a lot of amazing people came out of that neighborhood. Wendell Pierce was a neighbor. Several mayors from the city. Mm. I think Terrence Blanchard, I think, came from Pontchartrain Park. When we were in Tulane, by the way, the Neville brothers would come sometimes and just play on Fridays for the crawfish boil. I mean, that's New Orleans in nice. a nutshell, right? Anyway, so I grew up there, and I uh, was really good in math and science. And so growing up, if you're great in school and you get straight A's, my mom was like, you're going to be a doctor. My baby's going to be a doctor. Um, and when I was in high school, Tulane, which is the university, which, you know, even today I think needs to, and, and I'm on the board, we need to do a lot more to be more diverse, but then was trying to in, you know, include black students in the engineering program. So if you agreed to spend your summer, six weeks of your summer between your junior and senior year at Tulane learning the basics of like pre-engineering, you got a free HP programmable calculator. Nice. Yeah. Okay. So definition of a nerd that that was enough to get Lisa Jackson to take six weeks of her summer and do that. Um, and then from that point on, I said, you know what? I like engineering. I'll still do pre-med, but I'll be an engineer as pre-med. And then during that time, I kind of became aware of, I was a chemical engineer, and chemical engineers study all these industrial processes. And I started to say, okay, like, when the arrow on the chart goes off the page, where does that stuff go? That would be the waistline, and it would go wherever they dumped it. And, of course, we were becoming aware of that because of Love Canal, and super fun. So I kind of got got derailed in a mm. really positive way and decided if you're going to be an engineer, you should be on the, eth- the ethical side of that is there should not be lines off the page because that's somebody's community. Um, and so I ended up getting my master's at Princeton. Um, that should be your autobiography title, Lines Off the Page. <laughs> oh, that's a good one. And I should, I should write something down. Now that I'm listening to Obama, I'm like, I could definitely do it. I could do it. You just need to go to Indonesia, to Bali for like six months in a little... And I mean, just yeah, be nowhere exactly. but me. I yeah. think you could do it. Okay. I have faith in you. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Just by myself? Yeah. So anyway, so, so now then you went to Princeton. I'm, I'm no, at no, Princeton. No, 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 no. Okay, yeah. Uh, okay, Even sorry. whiter. Uh, yes. Yes. Actually... Was that shocking? 
Um, yeah, yeah. You you probably can't pick a more different environment than New Orleans, where I basically was still living at home, and so I had all that community. Than to go to Princeton, New Jersey, and you know, unlike today, back then there was no money to go visit Princeton. I just put in my application to Princeton and Stanford and MIT and a few schools, and I and I picked the one that gave me the best financial deal. Right. Because you know, I didn't have, I didn't have a any money saved. I was going to have to borrow whatever I couldn't. And I'd gone to Tulane on a Shell Oil Company scholarship, wow. so I didn't have any debt. Which yes. is yeah yes. Um, At least it wasn't a BP fellowship. <laughs> well, is <laughs> yeah, not a big not, difference, not, but not you were really. pretty involved in Deepwater yeah. Horizon for a little bit. Yes, yeah. and so oil company. I always wonder if they thought like, what you know, what did we do wrong here, this woman? But I even worked for them and um, learned a, a ton. So now I'm at Princeton and uh, I'm there. I step foot on campus and it's just very different. I mean, back then Princeton was like. Brooks Brothers was like the old time with the lobsters on the belt, and I know there's still people who, they were preppy. Like I yeah, had never none of really them listen to Pot Your Perth, so you don't need <laughs> no. to worry. Okay, <laughs> yeah, lobsters um, on the belt. Yeah, if you have a lobster on your belt, please send in a picture. Lisa and I will sign it. <laughs> or maybe you should put a disclaimer. Yeah. <laughs> like on this episode, lobsters on belts probably yeah. trigger warning for lobsters. On belts. So I'm there. It's it's completely different. It was a tough environment. And, you know, I learned a ton and I actually sat on Princeton's board uh, a couple years ago. So I always tell people Princeton was an incredibly important part of who I, I mm. am. And so from there, uh, I actually, my thesis was on wastewater treatment and um, using ionic resins. And my thesis advisor said, hey, um, so you're really geeking out. I mean, when people, when they meet Lisa, they never <laughs> imagine ionic fucking resins <laughs> in wastewater treatment. You just can't. It seems like a different person, but it's the same person. I mean, there was a time in my life when I really thought I was going to be like a field person cleaning up either water plants or really super yeah. fun sites. So I went to a nonprofit to help get sites cleaned up faster because there was already too much bureaucracy and enforcement in the Superfund program. Um, and But what I noticed was like the coolest people I met were working at the EPA. Hmm. This is 1987. Superfund's still a pretty new program. Everything's happening. The people I worked with at the nonprofit had been at EPA. And so finally I just said, you know what? I want to go to EPA. I want to go and see this place. Mm. I'm not going to stay. I'll just go for a few years, punch my ticket, and then from there I can decide what I want to do next. But I need to learn what these EPA people know. And it's true. EPA was the place in the world to go for any of those issues. I started in headquarters, worked on Superfund guidance documents, and then got the chance to move to a regional office, which, as you know, is where the actual cleanups are managed out of. And so I moved to New York and met, you know, George Pavlou, who became sort of my, you know, mensch mentor of all time. I worked probably in the trenches for 10 years or so before I ever became a first-level supervisor at EPA. And so you do. You learn the programs. You learn the people. Um, Superfund was always kind of the really fun program because it had money separate from the normal um, fiscal budget process. And so we were able to kind of project years in the future and think about cleanups differently.
talking about years in the future and budget, I remember like bizarrely, even though it was a very hostile, non-bipartisan environment that you had to get into after two years when the Congress changed mm. to, to Republican majorities, they still wanted to put more money in Superfund than than the administration. We would You would put in a certain amount, and then the Republicans. It was one of those only instances where people were like, yeah, we, we actually do want to clean up our communities. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a really important point to remember because we talk about, and this is part of what I think climate change challenge has been. People are catching differently now, but that it's really hard to get people excited about something out there, some big out there challenge that they don't see how it affects them. How is what you're proposing going to make my life better? Or is it just something that's going to help somebody else and I still have the same set of problems? And so Superfund is like that. It's a very local program. If you live near a Superfund site, it is probably 90% of what you think about. Your health, your children's health, your property value, your community's ability to grow and develop economically can all be tied up in this one site. Uh, and some of them, as you know, can be huge. They can be you know, counties wide if they're old mining sites, or they can be very small if they're like a, um, a groundwater problem. And so I think that's something we should keep in mind, because I think for climate change too long, for way too long, the idea was, you know, we should do this because it's this existential threat. It's actually a threat to livelihoods. It's a threat to communities. It's a threat to economic development. And it's increasingly a threat to health. And those are the things, I think, move people when it comes to the environment. We're, you know, we're high-minded and we care, but the difference between caring and action is oftentimes, you know, motivated self-interest in, in a good sense. Um, I mean, and it had the word global in front of it, which doesn't make it feel like it's happening right next to you. Doesn't feel like it's happening next to you. I think COVID, in a way, is showing us that those big, intractable global problems can be quite local. Climate change, because it's a little bit longer time frame, because a storm can feel isolated until you see storm after storm or drought after drought or wildfire after wildfire or you know, what the kinds of things that worry me, disease, you know, um, insect and other, born, you know, born diseases. Um, yeah, it's terrifying. Terrifying. So you go up the elevator with Rahm Emanuel, you come out <laughs> like a minted EPA administrator. Almost. Like one of the, yeah, pretty much. And then, and then one of the first things that you did on climate change, just to remind people, because it's a big deal and we sometimes gloss over this stuff, is the endangerment finding. What, what was, was about, that? Which what was, was about that? Uh, 11 years ago this month, right? Yeah. Um, so, you know, at the time, um, we became, uh, the Obama administration took over, the EPA had been on the losing end of uh, Mass versus EPA. Massachusetts, the state, and joined by other states, had sued EPA for not using the Clean Air Act for not following the mandate in the Clean Air Act to determine whether a pollutant, in this case CO2 and six other greenhouse gases, endangered public health and welfare. 
Um, and that's called the endangerment finding. And it's, you know, it's, it's like a sentence in the Clean Air Act amendments of 1990. But what it says is, if you find, EPA, that this pollutant endangers public health and welfare, you have to act. You can't just sit around and go, oh, well, you know, sorry to hear that. Sorry for this pollutant. <laughs> but instead, you have to do something. And so... EPA had been ordered to go back and look at this science, had actually looked at it, and then it was pretty well documented that the Bush administration put the scientific evaluation in a drawer and refused to receive it at the White House. And since they didn't receive it, they didn't have to act on it, was the thinking. Um, so that's kind of the scenario that the Obama uh, administration walked into and me as head of the EPA. So we sort of, you know, metaphorically opened up that drawer, dusted off the scientific report, looked at it again to update it, um, put it out for public comment. And then um, in December of 2009, so that was the president's first year in office, made the finding that, yes, greenhouse gases do indeed endanger public health and welfare. And we made that finding, we sort of made the announcement in Copenhagen at the big um, COP summit, which was sort of the if you're reading the book as I am, you know, it's a big deal because President Obama actually went to that summit to try to save international negotiations. It was sort of a switch. If you find endangerment, then you must act. And the whole government, but led by EPA, needs to start regulating CO2 and other greenhouse gases. So it was the first time that there had been a regulatory, sort of a government-level acknowledgement that this threat to public health and welfare was going to be tackled by the U.S. government. It was uh, in every rulemaking you hear, whether you're talking about power plants, if you're talking about cars, if you're talking about mileage efficiency in cars, you're talking about the endangerment finding, which upon which the ability to regulate CO2 is based. Without an endangerment finding, you can't regulate carbon dioxide. Every time it comes up in a conversation, I was like, Lisa Jackson did that. <laughs> well, the EPA Lisa Jackson, did it, no. and, and I was super proud, you know, to sign it. I remember um, at that Chicago announcement, I just, you know, remember feeling like what kind of a, a crazy moment is it to start as a, you know, staff-level engineer at the EPA and now be asked to lead it. Like, I can't think of a higher honor in public service. So those are the moments that the mercury rule, the car rules, they mean a lot, you know. And I remember Pebble the, Mine. Pebble Mine. Wow. Yes. Yeah, the L.A. River. Oh, L.A. River. We did a lot. We did do a lot. And we also did, what I love about your list is it was this mix of big policy and then local intractable problems that we decided we were going to try to, you know, dig back into and the Hudson River um, Chesapeake Bay Chesapeake Bay you know the Chesapeake Bay work we did I think lasted uh, it's eroding a bit but you know people started to see what a revived bay looks like yeah we worked on Tahoe Lake Tahoe I mean the trips up to the tribes in Washington you know around Washington State the, yeah, yeah Navajo and then we did uh, yeah and we did Havasupai Havasupai oh my gosh in the Grand Canyon yeah amazing place yeah so yeah I mean I think I do think we always try to you remember we had seven priorities and one of them was bringing back the conversation on environmental expanding justice expanding the conversation expanding on. thank you reminding me expanding the conversation 
on environmental justice. It needed expanding. It needed expanding to <laughs> actually include people. It right. still does. It really still does. And I think it is, it is incumbent upon folks as we move forward to make sure that we never again get in this place where the environment is seen as the purview of the well-to-do and folks who, you know, all their other needs are taken care of. Because as we now know, there's so many ways that the environment intersects with health, that the environmental environment intersects with economy. It was also a really tough time, though, for you, Lisa. It felt like the prelude to Trump, like the level of bitterness, the level of anger that people had about the environment and what EPA was doing was so out of whack with what you were actually doing. And it just felt, did it feel personal to you or how did it feel? I think Washington is a tough place in that way. You need to always remember it's not personal. By the time I left, I was pretty exhausted. It's just exhausting. I think part of it is, you know, a, a marathon and how long can you deal with this? I mean, if you remember the very end, it was like, we're going to have you up to testify so often right, we're going to put a parking spot in front of the, the building. I did. I testified more than any, I think, cabinet member. So think about, like, more than the Secretary of Defense, <laughs> more than the Secretary yeah. of the Treasury, you want to hear from the head of the EPA. I feel like, you know, there's at least some indication that people realize that's gone too far, that there are people of all political stripes who are hurting because of pollution and because of climate change and because of these intersections with the economy. If there's a shot for that, for somebody to sort of wake up and say, well, I don't, I'm not against clean air, actually. I was thinking that's pretty good. You know, I'm not, I'm not really against water. I like water. Water, actually, water is a huge strategic asset for this country. The fact that we have clean water to drink. You have to stay optimistic, as we were saying before. But, yeah, you just, you have to realize that um, D.C.'s, you know, it can be a pretty tough town. Uh, and it has gotten, I think, probably tougher in, in many ways. You have to go in with all the energy and belief that you're going to find a way to make a coalition around issues that really affect people in their communities. Yeah, that's where it's at. Mm-hmm. It has to be. And to be. and you often said the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, were the kind of greatest public health pieces of legislation nearly that ever been written in our country. And we see them as environmental, but to your point, like to broaden the conversation, it really is about public health. It's all about health. Yeah, you know, um, the mission of the EPA is to protect human health and the environment. And, of course, it's fun to then get the environment and focus on that and say, oh, you're a bunch of tree huggers and all you care about is the environment to the detriment of people. And nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, water pollution is directly related to health, right? And clean air is actually directly related to human health. We're seeing how related it is to resilience in terms of covid if you think about the number of deaths that have been avoided by the Clean Air Act, you realize that it's one of the things this country did to protect its own health, and it is a huge advantage around the world. When, when we think about the conversations that were prompted by George Floyd's murder, like I think people still have a hard time with the frame environmental racism, but it really is. I mean, racism does drive health outcomes 
And in California, as, as you know, we have this tool called Cal Screen. And basically, the, the blacker or browner that you are and the poorer you are, the worse your environmental outcomes. And as, you, as the graph gets whiter, your environmental outcomes and longevity increases. And it's built upon really that systemic racism. And how do you think, whether it's EPA or institutions, businesses, community groups, churches, how, how do we really start addressing that in a way that's going to have a material difference? Mm. We have a few things going for us, and then we have a few real huge challenges. The challenge is always the same, which is money. Like, we're now entering a time where um, the the incoming administration will have to try to figure out where and how to prioritize the spending that it can negotiate with Congress. And so some of that, I know and hope, will be directed towards infrastructure related to you know, environmental health, including water treatment, obviously drinking water. I think what's going for us is that the investments in R&D have led us to a point where cleaner technology is actually cost competitive in almost any place you want to go. And we have shown time and again that even if the cost, if there's something we need to tackle, if we can focus on it, we can technologically come up with a solution that will make sense and that will compete with the dirtier alternative. You know, I'm now at Apple, as you know, and one of the things we started to do early on, one of the engineers said to me, we should find a better way to make aluminum because we use a lot of the stuff. So we invested in carbon-free aluminum. It's more expensive in the beginning, but if you do it at scale, it's the same price as, you know, the regular aluminum. And so to me, that's true of every single environmental problem. It just takes will and attention and sometimes regulation because people are sort of in inertia. I think you do have a generation of young people who are much more engaged on this issue. They're not laissez-faire at all. And I hope that continues because, to me, it reminds me of the EPA I joined in the 80s, mm. you know, that, which was full of young people fresh out of school who were coming there because they knew the, these problems needed to be solved, not just talked about. So when you look at the new administrator, Michael Regan, trying to, to build the agency up, there's going to be tons of interested folks coming out who want to work for EPA again at least one that's, you know, working on protecting human health and the environment. What we have to do is go back to looking for state and local level solutions. States really do figure these things out before the federal government does in many cases. Yes, a price on carbon somehow would help a lot in terms of decarbonizing the grid, and I think that's, there's big work to be done there by, by EPA and the White House and Energy. The other big advantage is to see the transportation sector, where the leadership of California is, you know, um, is, is going to be acknowledged again. The big sticking point will be if, if whole communities, if those same communities of black and brown people, of poor people, are left out of the solutions and the jobs, if they don't see those solutions available to them or the economic opportunity available to them, and all it looks like is a bunch of venture capitalists and wealthy people making money, or Wall Street making a ton of money with ESG, we're going to see a setback. Because you can't blame people for saying, this isn't my life, it might be your life. So I think we have to insist on what people now call environmental justice, 
which is really just this idea that you can't clean up the environment if everybody's not engaged in it. You have to expand the conversation and you have to have not just the conversation, but the people at the table who, who represent those communities have the ability to bring solutions that combine opportunities with the challenges they see on the ground. How has faith helped you in your life, like deal with these big issues? Uh, faith is a tough, you know, I was raised a Catholic. Uh, I was adopted from a Catholic orphanage. My mom and dad were devout Catholics, a family of Creole Catholics in New Orleans. And so that'll always be part of me. Um, I'm also an incredible feminist. The nuns that I had growing up were extraordinary feminists as well. And so I think that's why it's always going to be a part of me. I do have a really strong faith. I do believe in in God, and I am from the Christian tradition, and I haven't changed that tradition. My husband and I, he's the person who always, like, brings me back to faith as well. But, I, you know, you have to believe. From my environmentalism to my family, in the wake of George Floyd, I have two, you know, black sons, and so I spend a lot of time just praying for their safety. I still do, uh, for the safety of so many people's children. You got to give it to somebody else sometimes. And that has been um, the belief that there's this, this divine love in the world that holds us together, that transcends hate. Thanks, Lisa. Thank you. This wasn't so bad. <laughs> I want to ask you now, can I interview you? I'm sure you want to interview me. I, I don't have that much to say, though, but I think we're going to have to wait until you start your own podcast, Lisa, which I'm sure. Every single Podship Earth listener hopes you do very soon. A huge thank you to Lisa Jackson for talking with Podship Earth today. Who knew that a $50 HP programmable calculator would connect Lisa to the environment and that P-Funk would later give President Obama the sign that Lisa should be the nation's top environmental regulator? This interview reminded me of just how fun and at times profound it was to work for Lisa. When an extremely frustrated environmental justice advocate approached Lisa during a rally, Lisa's EPA security detail got all nervous, and rather than retreating, Lisa reached out and gave the lady a huge hug. There really is love that holds the world together, and Lisa has found a way to share that love with the world every day. Thank you so much for being part of the Podship Earth journey from the entire Podship Earth crew, sound engineer Rob Spate, executive producer... David Kahn and from me, Jared Blumenfeld, let's trade an unworkable past in exchange for a workable future. Mm-hmm.